The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me, if you would, to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be picking up here in just a moment or two, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We have kind of enjoined in a little bit of a new section since we crossed that barrier between chapters 1 and 2. Uh, all of chapter 1, in my mind, of course, is just a matter of opinion the way I outline things. But it really had to do with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Of course, we went through several areas. I think there were about seven or eight of those divisions that we took loose as we were going through that. And uh, talked about how he began his ministry and some of the things that occurred to him and toward him and by him uh, throughout that time. We're in the new section that begins here in chapter 2, verse 1, and goes through chapter 3 and verse 6. So there's kind of an abrupt break there in the middle or top part of a chapter there but talking about the belittlement of Jesus. According to Mark's gospel and the way that he lines things up, of course, he moves at a rather fast pace. He uses that word immediately, uh, forthwith, anon, and there are several other terms that pretty much mean the same thing straightway uh, to keep that pace. But according to Mark's gospel, Jesus goes under attack fairly quickly. Of course, in chapter 1 already, he was challenged there by Satan in the wilderness. We know of that. But as far as the locals, the people, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, their real attacks kind of kick in in chapter 2. And they've already, in this very first subheading of that, and I've got some more ways to divide that up up here behind me, but in that first subheading of that already, they're actually making attack on Jesus because they did not like the fact that He claimed to be the Son of God, that He claimed to be God, that He claimed that He could forgive sins. Of course, they made a statement there we looked at on Sunday as well as last week uh, during the same period uh, that he claimed to be the Son of God and the fact that they said only God can forgive sins. And that's one of the things that they were factual about. And that's one of the truths that was established by the fact that he did that. Of course, he kind of flipped that on their heads or on its head and added to that, okay, now you can take up your bed and walk. So he's proving that he's able to do whatever he chooses. His power is ultimate. His power is complete. But these attacks, and I've kind of backed up and subheaded these a little bit, in the first place, they were finding fault in his method. They just didn't like the way he went about things. Uh, they didn't like the way that in many cases he was more or less taking attention away from them is what I think some of it boils down to. In the section we're in tonight, it picks up and goes through the next few sections, in my mind at least, although we'll divide it in a couple of pieces. It carries with the idea that they found fault in his men in his men specifically. And in this case, and the way it divides out, from my mind at least, the first thing they take up against is his publican friends. And they're going to make attack in our context tonight when he goes and chooses Levi, of course, Levi being a publican, also known as Matthew, a tax collector. They're going to make attack on that because they do not want him having any association with Levi nor any of his cohorts, any of his fellow workers. And so they make a huge attack on that and try to piece that apart. And then... In the next section, we won't get to tonight, uh, I wouldn't suppose, uh, verses 18 through 28. So kind of completing out this section, they start to attack his personal friends. And that's when they come against directly to his, at that time, disciples, uh, specifically probably the apostles, albeit in Mark's account now, we haven't yet had all of those apostles named yet. 
He's going through and selecting them. He's already picked up a few on the side of the riverbanks of the Gal Sea of Galilee. He's picking up Levi right here. So his number's probably about five by this point. And it's not until chapter three when the rest of them are named, whether or not he kind of called any of them in the intermediate, but they're all at least named out by the time we get on into chapter three. But that's kind of the main attacks that he's making in this section. And he brings attacks upon his uh, uh, publican friends as well as his personal friends. So we're going to kind of go with it that way. Now, as far as uh, always keeping in mind the context, always keeping in mind the parallel accounts, there are at least two that are available here. Mark has this account, verses 13 through 17. That's what we're studying here, but you can also notice chapter 9, 9 through 13 of Matthew, as well as Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. So that's kind of where this stuff continues on. And as I read through those parallel accounts in this case, which is kind of rare, uh, they pretty much go about saying the same thing. We'll come to one or two verses later where there's a little bit of variant, but there's nothing obviously that ever disagrees in Scripture. But sometimes we're enlightened by reading those other contexts because there will be oftentimes more details to be added. So let's just pick up the reading here. Um, again, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 beginning. And he, that is Jesus, went forth again by the seaside, and the multitude resorted unto him, and taught, and he taught them. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting by the receipt of customs, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Verse 15, And it came to pass that Jesus sat at meat in his house, and many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not, and I've kind of got this bracketed off in my mind, you'll see in a moment, but I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so let's just start breaking down a little bit of this section. First off, in thinking about this, we're mindful of where he is. He's gone back. He's been pretty much in and around the, the area of Galilee, Capernaum, off and on. And depending on basically two things, I think. One, how he was treated. Now, that's not that he's being treated negative and pushed out at this point. That will occur later. But based on how they're reacting to what he does, he oftentimes moves from place to place. For example, in the latter part of chapter 1, when we're kind of closing out that last section there, really the whole half of that first chapter concluded with, Jim, with, Jim, with Jesus consistently coming down and performing one miracle after the other after the other, up into the point we had the context there in chapter 1 where it talked about him healing many. That's in verses 32 through about verse 37. And even reporting the fact that there were many that came to seek him up into a point even where he determined, he said, verse 38, I'm in chapter 1, he's led, he said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore I came forth. And he preached, verse 39, in the synagogues throughout Galilee and cast out devils. Of course, from that place he moves back toward Capernaum. Now he's moving back toward the Sea of Galilee, and that's likely the sea or the water, body of water that's mentioned here. If you think about a little bit more of that, when you kind of and look up some of these terms and all, the idea of him being in this area 
carried with it the idea that he had come home. That's, that's what we're talking about when he's in Capernaum or when he's at Galilee. He's kind of working, as I said, in the area where he commonly worked, where he commonly was. But it says, And the multitude resorted to them, and he taught them. I've already referenced that back over in verse 38. That was Jesus' main intention. Now, we've talked about this before, but just to, as a reminder to us, did Jesus teach with words? That's an obvious. Did he also teach with his miracles? Yes. yes. As a matter of fact, some of the quotations we saw in the preceding context as well had to do with him just simply performing a miracle almost without a word said as far as verbalizing anything or explaining everything. But it speaks about him teaching them and them noticing in that this, quote, new doctrine that he teaches. And so even though he wasn't always preaching, if you will, teaching, you know, one-on-one -on -one answering questions, bouncing it off, as he's going to do in this section several different times, he's continuously teaching. Now, the miracles that he did, and this is another term we've used several times, what did the miracles that Jesus did do for his teaching? Did they help it in any way? They confirmed it. I've been using the word validated. They made those things real to the people. Now, once Jesus goes through his life, performs his miracles, and then he in turn leaves that miraculous ability over to his disciples, the apostles specifically, what would they do with miracles? Exactly the same thing. According to what we read in the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians 13 comes down to talking about some spiritual gifts. Ephesians talks about the same those spiritual gifts and the, the, the account and the listing of some of those in Romans, all of that comes down to the fact that they were there to confirm the word. And so if Jesus could teach without a miracle, you can suppose he would, but he is commonly performing miracles at this point. Now, there comes a point where he performs so many miracles that people get the wrong idea. Several different occasions where it be here in Mark, we hadn't quite gotten to that point, but in John, in his account specifically, right after one of the most commonly known miracles of us, the feeding of the 5,000, what happens to those people? They start to fade away. They go away from him. To the point he asked his own disciples, will you also go away? What was their issue? They were there looking for the next handout, seemingly the next piece of bread. But he taught them. And I think that's a very vital point is that even today, although we're not going to be performing miracles, obviously, that we have to put an emphasis on the fact that we need to teach people. Sometimes, as I've heard it said before, people don't know better or won't do better until they know better. And so we've got the gospel today to give that to them. But he passed by and he saw Levi. Now, the name Levi here, this is also a similar, uh, speaking of the same person as who? Matthew. This is Matthew. This is Levi. There are several texts. I want to turn to a couple of these. I've kind of got them written up here, jagged in the corner, but just to make a little bit of that comparison. Go first with me over into chapter 3 when the listing begins of those apostles that he was naming. Chapter 3, that's a, that's a 13, I think, supposed to be. It doesn't look like one. Uh, but it says, um, no, it's not. It's 18, probably. Yeah, it's listed in 18. So you got the listing of these apostles there around verse 18 or 17, 18, and 19. But he speaks of verse 16, Simon surnamed Peter, also James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, James, he surnamed them Barogenes. How do you say that? I, I can't say it tonight. Say it louder. Yeah, that, that sounded better than what I did. I don't know where I came with that. Which is the son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, 
Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Altheus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, which betrayed him, and they went unto an house. Now, where in the world is Levi listed there? He, he's Matthew. That's, that's the idea. And depending on the context, Mark makes a shift a few different times. Not very often, but he shifts a few different times to make that list. And of course, Matthew in his gospel would refer to himself in that listing as Matthew. Now, I don't know that there's always a significance to names, but I like to at least look and see what those mean. Apparently, the name Levi, the way that we see it, it is, he, it meant companion. I've kind of jotted that up here in the top. Levi meant a companion. Uh, also, in addition to that, Matthew seemingly means the name gift. So if you know Matthew, then they're apparently gifted according to their name such as that. Now, I can't be sure about this. This is my, my suggestion, so it's my opinion, and that's about all it's worth. But it could be, at least a few options, it could be that Levi carried with him his whole life basically two names. He could have been Levi, he could have been Matthew, and of course the name being selected by the different writers and such as that. And, and if he did that, it might be similar to what occurred with the Apostle Paul. Paul was called Saul, ultimately he is called Paul. Of course, Saul was a reference back to the Old Testament king. It meant something significant to them and was important. And then Paul, the term Paul, the name Paul, I should say, meant little. And whether or not that's a reference to his physicalities, there's a third century writer who uh, wrote a book called Paul and Thelkus. Is it Thelkus with a T, I think? And nonetheless, they named him as being short, bald, protruding eyebrows and, and such. And of course, someone in the third century could have sat down with their grandfather and said, well, I knew Paul and here's what he looked like. So it's potential there. But that may not have anything to do with it. It's more likely that Paul referenced himself or was referenced in that way because of the fact that he had become little in his, uh, in his manner, in the way that he carried himself. He had become little in the fact of spiritually speaking, not that he wasn't a spiritual giant, but he thought less of himself, and that's just suggestive. And then we've got Simon Peter, who you see the same thing happening. And we seem to know for sure that Simon carried both of those names at one point. But who took Simon and moved him to primarily using the name Peter? Jesus would do that. Jesus would refer to him as Simon Barjona, thou shalt be called Peter. And so that name shifts. I don't know if that's what happens with this man, Levi, Matthew, but there is a shift, whether it be by choice or by assignment. But we do know, go ahead. Yeah, there's. That's exactly right, and and uh, James is very common too. We've got a couple of James listed among the apostles. Of course, James half brother. So common names, and depending on how they're identified, that. But we do know that this one is listed as Levi, the son of Altheus. Now, I, I'm asking you to help me with this because I, I get confused in this. Some of this is King James speaks. Some of it's just I get confused. According to what we're reading in chapter three, verse eighteen. It, to me, this indicates, I'm, I'm asking, it may indicate that James, listed as the son of Altheus, would have been Levi's brother. Uh, that's what I get out of that. But again, you could have two Altheus as well. But I think that's why they're laying out and why their names are given. So we've got some brothers in here. Uh, of the apostles he's already chosen, has Jesus already chosen brothers? Yes. yes, in the first chapter, that's what he had done with James and John and, and Peter. And of course, Andrew done that as well. So he has Levi here. But it lists him as being sitting 
in the seat of customs. Now, this is similar, and the key word there is similar. Him being seated in the seat of customs is similar to someone, we might say, working in the counter tax assessor's office, something like that. Where pretty much, however, in their day, <laughs> I've, I've tried to think this through and be careful with it. It may actually be, believe it or not, that in their day, taxes were worse. And that, that's hard to tell uh, in our society, but taxes could have been worse in that day. They were taxed, similar to we are, on, on pretty much everything. They were taxed on their incomes. They were taxed on their goods. They were taxed on their properties. They were taxed through what they purchased. And everything kind of down the line lines up very similar to what we do. But those who sat in the seat of customs right here in these things, they're not necessarily in a, a tax assessor's office. They're not at the headquarters of the IRS or anything like that. These men, generally speaking, what I could dig up, they, generally speaking, pretty much worked out of a shack. And these things were placed strategically in and around Capernaum, particularly in over here near Galilee, because what happens so often in Galilee? That's not the way they did it, but fishing, the fishing industry. And Capernaum slash Galilee, this whole area where Jesus is wandering, is not only extremely busy because of the fishing industry, but Capernaum within itself was one of the larger cities in its time. So it's a hustling, bustling place. And these tax collectors, tax assessors we might call them, they sat in little shacks along the way and basically hit people up immediately for their tax. So you can imagine coming in from a, a decent day's fishing and, and headed off to market or wherever you would sell those or to take some of those back home and the first thing that happens is somebody jumps out in the street at you and says, okay, now this is it. I want mine. I, I want what the Romans deserve. And of course the Jews, we know from all, all indications here and others, absolutely seemingly despised those tax assessors. Now part of that was because of the fact that especially with Levi, you've got a Jewish man born and raised as anyone else, and he's basically become some kind of a turncoat or a traitor in that he's now working as a front to the Roman government to collect those taxes. And so this man, Levi, even though several of them that we have listed in Scripture apparently had, uh, had at least access to great wealth because of the way the system was set up, uh, the way they got these jobs, I'm told, they bid on them, basically, and told the Roman government, okay, if you want this amount, I'll get you this amount. I promise I can get this out of people, and if anything over above, they would have that. What's another uh, tax collector, I'm doing that for a hint, that we read of who did something similar? Zacchaeus. Now, we know he had done, admittedly, some wrong because his promise to Jesus was what? Whatever I've taken, I'll give it back fourfold. So he admits guilt in that. Again, it's, it's your job on one hand, but these sometimes men like all of us today could easily get into a habit of getting greedy and abusing even in this case his own people. But that is at least where he was. So he's in the receipt of custom. I'm trying to think there was a few more little details, uh, but they, they're standing out behind the building right here, not in my mind right now, but... Uh, Oh, oh, this is, this is one thing I wanted to add in. There was actually a high price to pay for being one of these men set at the seat of customs, a tax collector. And that included, obviously, being an outcast of your society. It also included being ejected or at least dejected from the synagogues. 
And so when you're dealing with the scribes, the Pharisees, or for that matter, any of the Jews or whatever, this person had in their minds, I guess, turned their back on all of the Jews, Jews in society, and they would be outcasts from the synagogues. Now, what's wrong with being an outcast of the synagogue? That, that was where their worship, at least where the majority of their learning and, and different assemblies and, and all of that. And, of course, they're dejected seemingly from that. But he is at the seat of cuspins. But Jesus comes by. Somebody say something. Corruption among the publicans was very common. I mean, it was expected. Yes. Yes. Yes, and I'm sure it would be like any other job. I mean, one side of this, I have to admit, on one side of this, you could be, you're basically working on commission. And so, you know, there, it could be like any job. I'm sure it could have been done correctly. But Jesus, somewhat, for whatever reason, decides to pull this man from that. So we got Levi, Matthew, the son of Altheus, in the seat of custom or at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. Now, I think we've seen a similar phrase already, and that's pretty much the, the terminology. It's going to be universal for all of Jesus' apostles slash and or eventually disciples. And that is extremely important to understand that someone who becomes a Christian, we'll pair this up, they're one and the same in one sense, but that includes them being a follower of Him, being someone who follows His pattern, being someone who does as He says. It's very important for that. Now, I've kind of jotted this little tiny information down here at the bottom. The word follow, and it's actually the same Greek words used three times here in these two verses. But the word follow right here is in a, in a tense which indicates three things. One, it's present. What that means is you follow me right now. Jesus didn't come to him and say, okay, when you get your ducks in a row, when you get all your taxes collected, and when you get to the end of the year and you see that you've made profit and you've got enough uh, tucked away that you can... You know, spend a little bit of time with me on the road and we'll go out. That's not the implication of this word at all. He's, he's calling upon him to follow him without seemingly any at all stipulation to it. The idea of it being active, and this is just the way the Greek works out, is the fact that he's talking to him. He wants him to do it. Uh, Mike almost referenced similar things in the invitation a while ago when Mike kind of made the comments about, you know, a lot of times what happens in the life of a person is in their mind they'll say, well, I'm going to do exactly what my grandmother did or what my parents did, or they'll go back generations for that. And the idea here is that he is being called to follow regardless of what anyone else does. And completely aside from that, and the fact that it's an imperative is exactly that. Jesus is really not leaving him option. Now, to say that and to be careful with that, you have to, because do we have an option to follow Jesus? It's kind of a trick question. You know, we've got the free will to do it, but in judgment, what are those options limited to? In reality, they get limited back to the fact we either would have or should have. But free will was involved. But he does call upon him in the very similar way that he does the others. You remember when he called the others uh, back over? If you look, we see it in verses uh, 16 through about 19 of chapter 1. When he calls those men, 
they were found where? In the ships. They were found on the Sea of Galilee. One or a couple of them in the ship, a couple of them mending their nets nearby. Jesus doesn't have much of a discussion with them except for I'll read the quote from verse 17. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. The verse concludes by saying, They forsook their nets, and that's the next words there, followed him. Following him without stipulation. And so that's why I bracketed off pretty much the rest of that. So he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples. So who are the assemblers here? Well, you've got the publicans. You've got the tax collector. Well, they're the one and the same. But you've got the publicans there. You've got the disciples of Jesus. You've got Jesus. And we also have the scribes, the Pharisees showing up in this. And they say there are also sinners there. Now, if in general, if in general in any assembled group, I stood back and looked at that group through the eyes of a Pharisee especially, and I said, look at there, a bunch of sinners over there. I'd be probably right. There's no argument about that. I could say that about us. You know, there's some sinners in this room. Yeah, there, there's especially one. Not intentionally and continuously, but that's a generalized statement. However, oftentimes when the term sinner is used by the Pharisees, they're not necessarily drawing out someone because, and they do this, I'm not saying they never do, but they're not looking at the group and saying, okay, we've got publicans, we've also got harlots, we've got drunkards, we've got adulterers, and they could name off the litany of sin. It's not necessarily what they're focused on. The idea, and actually the word for sinners right here, indicates these people are just out of harmony with a standard. I tried to carefully emphasize a standard. Our one and only standard is God. But the standards that the Pharisees oftentimes put men other included what? Their, Their standards. So many times in, in life, we have to be careful as Christians, especially you and I, we're, we're striving to be faithful Christians, we're trying to be truthful you know, true to the word, what have you. So many times, lines are drawn in the sand, if you will. That's some articles that have been written through the years, a similar title. Circles or lines are drawn, and those lines are not necessarily based on Scripture themselves. They're based on, as we're going to see in the next context, tradition, such as fasting, different things. They're based on so many other areas where men have determined and drawn their lines. And God Himself only makes those determinations. So they mention there that he's there with his disciples, also with publicans and sinners. Look what happens. I'm in verse 16 now, picking up. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his, and I, I don't know why this jumped out at me the last few days, as I went back over this. They said this to his disciples. Who do they want to talk to? Who are they directing these accusations at? But what do they do? They speak to his disciples. That is, to me, that, I don't know that this is the, the only application of that, but that made me feel better. Because oftentimes you and I as Christians are attacked, and who are they trying to get to? Ultimately, God, Jesus. They, they may not even realize that. 
But we're under attack many times or persecuted as a result of what people think or would desire to do toward God. So they believe. And so he goes, they go and they speak to his disciples. A couple different times, Cliff pointed this out a few weeks ago in a sermon. I think it was with a nobleman. We've mentioned it in our context before. But it's almost as if my children do this, where they're speaking to uh, supposedly Maya will speak to Libby and say, Libby, leave me alone. But who's she looking at? Looking over at me across the room. They say this in such a way. Now, there are times preceding context where they didn't even speak. Jesus heard their thoughts. He sensed what they were thinking and used that toward them. But in this case, he hears them. So they say to his disciples... They said unto his disciples, How is it that he, that's Jesus, eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? How could he possibly do that? Because in their standard, and again, I'm not trying to separate me from this at all. To an extent, we all would hope to do better or desire to do better. But in their minds, if Jesus is in the proximity of a public, he's equal to that. He's cohorts with them. He's right along. He supports everything they do. Same thing with their supposed sinners, which many of which did not necessarily, were not in just awful lying in the ditch sin, but just simply weren't living to their standards in life. I'm mindful in that of what Jesus said Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, he said, except, and he's speaking there to the Pharisees as well, that context, he said, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall know likewise see kingdom of heaven or see heaven. So the idea is our righteousness is at God's standard, not theirs, which in one sense is much higher, but in one sense at least has a, a true standard to it. They, they don't mind flipping the narrative, I think is the term we might use today, and that's coming up in our context even here in Mark uh, within just a few, probably two weeks or so, the way we're traveling. But yes, their standards are different. And so they say to his disciples, why can he do this? Now Jesus heard it, we know that. And he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Now, that's very practical, and Jesus is so commonly just extremely practical in that. And if you went to the doctor's office, and I get we have well-patient visits, so this doesn't bear itself out completely. But if you go to the doctor's office, what do you expect, particularly a primary care physician, what do you expect there at the pediatric office? What do you expect? People are there because they're sick. I mean, either sick currently or they're sick to have something, or they're not necessarily currently at the moment, you know, ailing, but they've got something they're having checkups on, they're having testing, they're having follow-ups. People are sick. Sick people need that. And so Jesus, when he hears the scribes and the Pharisees, I, I think it's almost, uh, I don't know, I thought Jesus, I guess comical is what wanted to come out, but I hate to do that with our Lord, but 
they speak across the disciples toward him, and he speaks back in a similar manner. I'll tell you what, the ones I'm here to see are those that are sick and know they're sick. What's wrong with the Pharisee? He either doesn't know he's sick or doesn't want to admit it. Right, exactly. Yes, and that, again, is that to throw them completely under a bus and back over them twice? No. Because how many times if, if I committed sin and then that exact moment thought to myself, well, you're just a rank and file sinner. No, sometimes we get too far above that with ourselves, with pride or whatever. But that's the way he immediately responds to them. They that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick. And then he adds this phrase, the latter one I bracketed out. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if we look at that from the perspective of, well, wait a minute, he's not trying to call the righteous. He's not trying to call people who do right, to continue to do right. No, it's a little bit of a play on words. I come not to call you who believe you're already righteous, but those who are willing to admit they're sinners. I can remember years ago, and of course there's like 54,000 tracks Alan Webster's written through the years. All of them that I know of have been great and, and been very useful at some point. But he used to have one that may or may not be still out there, God's Hospital. The eye there and the premise of that being that the sick are the ones who need the physician, those who know they're sick as well. And so he's coming to call sinners to repentance. Now, if you back up in the preceding chapter from this, Jesus has really come to call all men to repentance. But in the way that he handles these people, he makes some distinction there, I guess, for emphasis' sake. So, coming away with this, the way I try to divide this out, if we can accomplish it. We've got the meaning of the text. We've gone through kind of verse by verse, phrase by phrase, almost word by word. Which, by the way, anything to add? I'd love to add it. If you got it. Uh, but we've also got the man of the text, who's the centralized character of all of this, Jesus. But what about the meaning? I, I kind of drew away some meanings for myself. Number one, uh, this is a good principle to encourage us and, and others with also. This reminds us that Jesus can take the most dejected or rejected of society and give them value in the kingdom or in eternity. So in the, in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, this man Levi, this man seated at the seat of customs, this tax collector, he was of no value or worth to them, more than likely. Matter of fact, the common Jew would have not have been too excited to see him coming. You know, we put it in modern terms. I don't think they would do it anymore, but in the old days when they pulled up in the black Cadillac and the suit and the pistol on the side, people got nervous. You know, they're here. They're going to audit. They're going to whatever. These men were often dejected. Now, that's not the only time that that happens. We'll see some more in a minute. Number two, following Jesus will always be the best decision a person can make. We knew that. But we have to be encouraging to others so that they can know that. There are so many things in this world that seem so attractive to the world, or even to us, while we're in them. How important is someone's job that pays, I'll make up an exuberant amount that probably none of us make locally, but pays $15 million a week? That'd be a big deal to most. 
and probably all who are centered on the worldly things are looking for only the temporal, obviously. This is a much more value. We know that. And then the last one here that I, I just thought of today and you add to, the enemies of Jesus will always attempt to put him down along with his followers. When we are mistreated, when we are, if you will, persecuted, whatever you line that up with, again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, the first section, right after he comes out of what we call those B attitudes, those blessed, 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 happy R's, What's the first thing he mentions there? It's the last one, but the first thing he expands on. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he uses what we would call two, three more verses to expand that a little bit. And so that is to be known and assumed. Now, my slides did not work out like I wanted them to somehow, but as far as backing up to the preceding, the top one there, Jesus can take those most dejected. These are just other instances where he did that. The woman that Jesus contacted at the well, was she in general just a wonderful, great person to be around? Not according to the conversation Jesus had to have with her. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that she was an outcast totally of all of society, but she would have been very much out of the norm in her day. The tax collectors, the sinners here, the poor and the sick, often that were dejected by others, the lepers. You know, it's interesting to me that the last miracle that, that we read about in the context that Jesus has committed uh, in the, we see the latter part of chapter 1 as it closed out. He was performing a miracle on whom? That was a leper. He goes from the leper to the lame man. You've got a leper who's dejected from society a lame man who could have even been dejected from even his or her worship. At least not allowed to be in the temples and the synagogues on the old law uh, to that point. But as, as infuriating, I believe, and as sickening, I guess, to some people, him healing a leper was, him reaching out to a tax collector was of equal, uh, equal proof that he was willing and loving enough to reach out to all. And then other references here. Uh, it'll take me a minute because I didn't do my slide right. But um, what are some benefits of being a Christian? Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So it's access to the Father. He said, if you keep my commandments, I will abide with you in love. You just have to keep my Father's commandments. I abide in love. So we have the abiding uh, nature of Jesus with us. He said, I am come that you might have life, have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said that. It gives abundant. There's so many benefits that are listed out. Anything else? The lost coin, lost sheep, lost, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
those of the world are not interested in him. And he loves them and rejoices when they come back to him and start living his own. And I think that's, I mean, I would, I just would just admit that that is a point where many times we fail and that we shy from those people as well and don't go to them without understanding, one, there's a soul involved no matter who it is, but on top of that, oftentimes they're a little bit more open, seemingly, to the truth in times, and so we've got to reach those as well. All right, we've got next week... Uh, the next context, if you looked ahead, next week, Lord willing, we'll be picking up there in verse uh, 18. And as I described it earlier, he'll be, they'll begin their attacks on his personal friends. And this is where Jesus gets to a discussion about fasting. And so kind of be reading through that. Uh, I'm not suggesting one way or another, nor would I, but I just read through the idea. If you can look through, and I don't care how you do it, uh, look through the idea of fasting. I'll give you a hint in the context uh, of verses 18 through 22. Jesus is not telling them to fast or not. It's not, this is not a proof text as much as it looks like it may be. Jesus is simply telling them it's an appropriate time to do everything. And, of course, the times that they're suggesting of fasting is not appropriate for what Jesus describes. But uh, the highlights of that, he's going to argue with a wedding, a wardrobe, and a wineskin. And that's not some kind of a... Uh, Nardia thing, but the wedding or wardrobe and a wineskin is his three arguments he gives there. So be looking into that, and uh, if I don't chicken out, we'll do our best for that on next week, Lord willing. Thank you.